Greetings, my name is Griffin Schaefer. And my name is Scott Peterson. And this is episode 90 of Inside Quizzing. A podcast about Bible quizzing for folks who love the Bible. And in this episode 90, uh, Scott and I will be talking about two big topics um, after a handful of announcements. We're going to be talking about objectivism versus subjectivism and uh, sort of our different objective and subjective arguments about those two things. Um, so we'll see how far down that rabbit hole we go. And then we want to address a what what we think is a critical question, and maybe we should start by figuring out how to prove or demonstrate that it's a critical question. But the question is, why quizzing? Why why do we do quizzing? Um, obviously, we care about quizzing a lot. We definitely do quizzing, and we care about it tremendously. But why? I mean, there's, there's personal reasons why. I think there's social reasons why and things that go beyond that as well. But maybe we can get to why does quizzing exist at all? Uh, and what's the point and what are we trying to accomplish and kind of go down that very lengthy road to see what we can uncover there. Um, hopefully we can uncover a, a lot, but we shall see. But before we get into those uh, interesting topics, we are going to be talking a little bit about some, actually not really talking, mostly just announcing things. So the first thing is that, um, and I don't remember if if I, if we announced this, the last episode, it's been a while, but the new rule book is officially ratified. Um, the vote deadline is, uh, actually in a couple of days, we're recording this on Monday, April 5th. The deadline for voting for district votes is, uh, Wednesday, April 7th. My assumption would be, you know, like midnight that night, like I guess midnight the morning of the 8th or something like that. Uh, but we have 10 votes in already, and they're all 100% yes votes. So that's, you know, over 50%, well over 50% of the uh, active districts. I think there's 13 or 14 active districts. I forget the exact number. Um, but uh, so, yeah, the new rule book is ratified at this point. Obviously, you know, if you're in a district that hasn't voted yet, we certainly would like to hear from every district, uh, as, you know, and get those votes in before the deadline, because we certainly want to hear, for, uh, make sure everybody has a voice and hear from every voice. Uh, now, what does this mean in terms of, you know, using the new rule book? Well, you know, in terms of this coming international, so well, let's say April, May, June, so like two months and a week or something, I guess, or two weeks or something like that, uh, this rule book will not be used at that uh, internationals. So internationals uh, 2021, this new rule book, though ratified, will not be used. We will continue to use the 2018 rule book. This new rule book will be used the following, probably, I think the CQLT still has to approve it. I forget exactly what the process is, but the following uh, IBQ is the first opportunity when this new rule book uh, will be used. But because of our mandate to uh, do our best to maintain functional equivalence in this new rule book, if you were actually to use the 2018 rule book at the 2022 IBQ, theoretically, you should be just fine. Um, at least that's the hope. There should be very, very little difference uh, between those two rule books. So that's kind of the state of the world. Um, obviously, as we make progress, uh, we being, uh, I shouldn't say we, as the future rule book committee 
gets formed uh, as the CQLT forms that committee and as that committee makes progress through actually making future substantive changes to the rulebook, those will you know follow the change management process that's part of that rulebook that just got ratified. So uh, it's a cool, exciting, not conclusion, but a, a cool milestone, I think, in the progress of cleaning up and making the rulebook uh, ever better. So I'm very excited about that. Um, Scott, do you recall how many districts there are and any sort of thoughts about the, the process as, as we've gone through it so far? I recall there was 14, not including the potentially forthcoming um, Midwest, Illinois-ish district. Um, and so nine ratified so far is well over 50%. But of course, we would love additional districts to ratify it as well. And um, and, and we're at 10, share... by the way. Oh, we're at 10. That's yeah, awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and share it around as widely as possible. Because while the goal was to have the new one be functionally equivalent... It is formatted differently, organized differently, laid out differently. Um, and so people becoming familiar with um, the new format and all of the wordings and everything would be great. Um, and one of the big goals of the new rulebook is a clear change management process so that new rules just don't randomly show up at random meets that um, not 100% of the districts were prepared for. So that's why Griffin said, hey, this is a new rule book. Um, are, is it being rolled out in a couple months here? And the answer is no, right? It's being rolled out in, like, is it technically usable for the 2021-2022 season that begins in the fall? I think, I think yes. I think it's ultimately up to the CQLT of when they decide to announce when they're going to start using it. I, my understanding is, I think the intent, and I'm, I'm pretty sure Zach's intent is this: is that he wants the CQLT to say, yeah, we will use this for 2022 uh, IBQ, and then of course it's entirely up to up to the districts of you know, what rules they want to use whenever. So, I mean, the IB, IBQ can use rules from Mars and, and it doesn't matter to the districts. You can use the, tw uh, you know, the 1997 rule book uh, in your local district if you wanted to. Um, probably not a good idea because, you know, then when you transition to internationals, there, there's kind of a bit of a culture shock in doing that. But, you know, districts are free to do whatever they want. Um, really, this is just a, you know, when, when does IBQ use it? So, I mean, in terms of districts, you know, yeah, if you're, you know, in a local district, you can adopt the new rule book right now if you wanted to. I mean, I I suppose there's no harm in doing that. I guess I would recommend a, a, a rule book adoption maybe over the summer between seasons. Um, but given the functional equivalence nature of, of the new rule book, I mean, you could conceivably just start, you know, using it in your local districts even now. Right. And when I say, like, will it be in play for the 2021-2022 season, I'm just kind of oversimplifying, right? Because yeah. the CQLT will say, oh, it, it will be in effect for this internationals. And I think for simplicity, most districts will just say, like, well, whatever's going to be in place for internationals, we'll just do it at our district too, maybe with a modification or two. But in general, the districts just adopt it as well, right? Yeah. Um, but along with the change management process, so, like, it's new now. But but likely, well, at the earliest, wouldn't be used at an internationals until 2022, right? So not 2021. But that also means that if if there is something about the current rulebook that you have a desire to change, right? Like maybe you hate 
that um, it is assigned seat bonuses at internationals, right? Um, well, you have the ability to propose changes, and then there is a process by which they will be discussed and decided upon. But any changes from this point forward um, will not become adopted until after internationals 2022. And so the earliest any changes would go in effect at an internationals meet would be for 2023. Um, but you do have quite a, quite a lot of time to get that ball rolling if there are certain rules, proposals um, that you want to bring forward. Yeah. Now, while the actual rollout slash implementation slash adoption of those rules at IBQ is you know, rather delayed and of course on purpose, right? We, we want the process to be slow so that no one is blindsided by any sorts of rules changes that, that ever, every district has an opportunity to, you know, roll with ever, whatever rules are going to happen for at least a season before they're, they're in play at internationals. Uh, you know, again, like I said, at, at your district level, you can do whatever you want, whenever you want. And the changes that will happen to the rule book are not necessarily going to be things that you just have to wait around, you know, a year for, let's say, right? Um, in a, let me rephrase that a little bit. Despite the fact that from the point of you making a rule book change to the point where that rule book ch uh, change is actually used at internationals, despite the fact that that time frame is long, purposefully long, and it may seem like rules changes would happen very slowly, you can actually make rules changes very quickly. They just won't necessarily be implemented for internationals for a while. Um, so what this means is like, you know, if you, uh, you know, in, in Scott's example, want to change, uh, you know, assign seat bonuses to team bonuses, let's say, uh, you can make a rulebook uh, change suggestion by either filing an issue on, you know, on GitHub, starting a discussion, sending an email, whatever it happens to be. And all of that sort of debate and discussion, it should be, the, the intent is all of that should be uh, made public. It should be done in, the, in a public forum. Everyone who wants to be able to contribute their voice should be able to contribute the, their voice. And within a fairly short period of time, uh, three months basically, from the point of, of that suggestion rolling in, uh, the rule, you know, yet to be created rulebook committee will make a vote on it theoretically, if it's had the opportunity to sort of gel and have a, you know, a consensus point point reached, um, they could vote on it within three months. In other, and so for quite some time before IBQ happens, you'll actually know what the rulebook will probably be like. Now, ultimately. All of these changes, despite the fact that, you know, let's say there, there might be a change for this rule or that rule or the other rule, there might be three different rulebook changes that the, uh, the rulebook committee uh, ratifies, well, not ratifies, votes on and approves. Those have to be as a bundle ratified by the CQLT, right? So very likely the CQLT will ratify whatever comes out of the rulebook committee. But the idea being that, you know, as a as you know, somebody working in a particular district, you'll actually see what rules are going to be proposed to the CQLT to ratify long before the CQLT ever actually ratifies them, which means you can actually if you wanted to as a district or as a church, you could actually be quizzing under rules that are far that are that are basically probably going to be implemented, but are far prior to their implementation uh, time frame, if that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, I imagine that very few people would want to do that because they could just 
do it anyway. I mean, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's unlikely you would want to, um, but it could be one of those things where you're kind of like, yeah, we have, we believe that, you know, hey, there's this rule that we really like. The rulebook committee has approved it. The CQLT hasn't yet, but it's it's fairly likely they will. And we want to just go ahead and start using it at district level uh, quizzing, even though we know it will not be used at IBQ, at least this coming IBQ, uh, but probably will the following IBQ, that kind of thing, right? You have the freedom in your district to do whatever you want. Absolutely. And there's so many more positives that come out of it, like with everything being on GitHub, which sounds fancy, but it just means that um, it is on the internet and it's easy to see changes. So nothing is ever secretive or hidden or obfuscated, right? It's anyone at any point can go and look and see like, this is the current state. And then this is the state that is proposed for in a year or so. Right, exactly. And those, those are just links, right? So, I mean, you could, you could know absolutely nothing about how GitHub works and you could just click on a link on the homepage and it'll take you to whichever version of the rulebook you want to look at. So that stuff's very easy and auto-built and all that kind of thing. What I get pretty excited about is if an idea pops up that, that for a rulebook change, anybody that wants to has the ability to read and you know, debate the point, uh, giving pros and cons and maybe alternative, uh, you know, third or fourth ways of rewriting a rule, uh, let's say, right? So none of that is behind closed doors. There, There isn't any kind of secrecy behind it. It is deeply transparent on purpose, uh, recognizing that, you know, probably most people will not engage in the process, but people have the choice of engaging in the process at every level uh, uh, along the way. They have a voice, nothing will be a surprise. Uh, and you know, if you strongly disagree with a particular change, you, you have ample opportunity to actually express your disagreement and try to convince people to change their minds. Yep, and the way that GitHub works is like, no one has the ability to, I mean, I don't wanna say ignore, but like, um, what am I trying to say? Like shut someone down or like everyone gets their say, you know? Right. Right. You can't, you can't silence somebody. How's that? Right. It's not like, I don't know what specifically was in the past, but let's say hypothetically one person was in charge of the rule book. Well, if someone proposed an idea to them and they just didn't like it, then it kind of just dies and no one else ever knew that there was a proposal. Right. Whereas this new way is very, very much democratizing the access and the information and the ability to at least propose changes, right? So that every change is, tr every proposal is treated as equal, and then it will stand on its merit and what others think of it. Um, and it's not, it's not like this um, closed door. Um, this one just gets declined for no apparent reason, or you know, like um, right. it's a lot more open, which I think everyone likes because um, I'm sure I'm sure everyone could come up with a current rule that they don't like but if it was debated openly and then decided to stay the way that it is I think everyone would be more fine with those rules that they don't currently like even if nothing changed right indeed indeed now of course this isn't democracy in the sense of people's votes matter um, it there's still you know uh, I don't know exactly 
oligarchic in a, a pseudo oligarchic in a way. Um, actually, no, it's sort of, uh, it's a Republic. It's sort of a representational Republic with bureaucrats. So your CQLT is a, is the Republic that's voted on via the democracy and the rulebook uh, committee yet to be formed uh, is the, you know, the bureaucrats uh, running administrative tasks on behalf of the CQLT, if you want to use that sort of jargon. Um, but the idea being that 100% of everything the committee does is transparent and it is um, engageable at every step of the way by anybody. Uh, and I think that those are tremendous improvements. We definitely don't want to, you know, turn the rule book into, you know, pure, a pure democratic uh, vessel because, you know, that would fail for the same reasons pure democracies fail all the time. Um, you know, see you know, Greece, Rome, you know, any number of historical examples. Um, but, uh, you know, that we definitely don't want things happening away from the eyes of everyone. Because um, generally nothing terribly bad happens as a result of that, but nothing good really happens as a result of that. And some good and sometimes tremendous good can happen when things are transparent. Right. And I found that things being transparent helps not because it guards against um, people who will opaquely do bad things, but when everything is transparent, everyone has just way more trust in everything, which yeah. is like just leads to more a more positive outcome. So it's not like, oh, well, we need transparency to like get rid of these bad opaque actors. You know, it's no, we just want to like set a really positive tone on it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And then, you know, like you said, if you, you know, you or anybody has a, a rule change idea that they propose and it gets, you know, generally uh, discussed in detail and debated, but ultimately uh, is is not ratified, is voted down, let's say, by the by the rulebook committee, uh, you know, you may not like the outcome, but it was done transparently and fairly and openly. And you had your, your, your voice, right. And you had an opportunity con to convince people to change their mind, right. That's far better than, you know, making a suggestion. It goes off into the void and just not really knowing what's going to happen at that point. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, uh, let's see, uh, moving on to the next big announcement. Uh, so the next big announcement is not really a super big announcement. I mean, it's really cool. Um, but everybody should kind of already know that it's happening. So Great West Invitational is happening. It is happening this coming weekend, uh, just in a handful of days, like four or five days away, four days away from now. It starts on Friday, April 9th. Uh, it'll start at 5 p.m. in the best time zone. And then you'll have to adjust, you know, for whatever local time zone you happen to be in. But it'll start, let's say, Friday at 5 p.m. Uh, Pacific time, uh, daylight uh, savings time for some crazy definition of of savings and then continue into Saturday, uh, the 10th. And, uh, unfortunately it will be virtual. Uh, so we will, uh, be able, you know, congregating in our normal typical way on Slack and via zoom channels and so forth. Uh, but it will have the usual three districts, PNW, CMD, uh, West can. Uh, so it'll be great to be able to quiz with all three districts, uh, involved. We will have four quiz rooms running, uh, simultaneous quizzes and, uh, a fairly significant number of quizzes, uh, 10 prelims per team and, uh, a pretty standard, uh, championship bracket, 
uh, round uh, or, or a bracket round that leads to a championship set of quizzes. Uh, first uh, team to win two uh, of the championship quizzes wins overall. Uh, and let's see, so I will be the meet director. I am not slated to quiz master. Uh, so that gives me an opportunity to bounce around different rooms and actually observe a little bit more. Uh, Scott is going to be running uh, stats along with, oh, I forgot, forgot his name from uh, CMD. Who's the person who's helping you out? Dustin Letkeman. Yeah. So Dustin will be working with Scott running stats. Uh, we've got some great quiz masters representing uh, all three districts uh, across uh, the four different rooms. So that's great. And uh, scorekeepers galore. So uh, it'll be a, a really awesome meet, I am sure. So if you are interested in observing and spectating that meet, you definitely want to connect up to Slack at your earliest convenience and go hang out in the virtual meet channel. And therein will be all kinds of penned comments and discussions about uh, where quizzing is taking place if you want to observe uh, that sort of stuff. All right, so with that, let's uh, kind of move into topic number one. So Scott, do you want to kind of lead this one off? Yeah, so this is, um, I guess the, yeah, quizzing is a content or verbatim sport, but I th still think that su subjectivity in places is better um, than pure objectivity and Griffin favors objectivity at every turn, but not blindly, which means that even though I phrased it as I think subjectivity is better in some cases and Griffin doesn't, we are probably a lot closer than it may seem. Um, but right off the bat, quizzing is a content verbatim sport. And what that means is it's not trivia, right? We're not asking essay questions or meaning questions um, where we're just trying to see like, did you understand this concept, right? Can you tell me the point of the book of Matthew? Can you, um, right? So it's not um, thematic or essay, at least as far as the competition. Um, and so then once you're into the competition, it's like, okay, well, that's the reality, but how far does it go? And so my, my current view is that when it comes to deciding what's correct, incorrect, or um, out of context, it is good that there is currently some subjectivity and, and that means that officials have to make their rulings and it means that officials may not make the exact same ruling in every single room even if the situation is the exact same but I think that this is best um, or at least better than pure objectivity in those areas right because we could say like oh every question has to every answer has to be word perfect well then you have pure objectivity right and it will always be consistent in every room but I don't really think it's the best thing to require a word perfect on every single question type. Similarly, for out of context, we can say, if you say three or more consecutive words um, that only occur once and they occur out of context, then you're out of context. But I would rather a quiz master be, um, be given the, I guess, power, but like um, be forced to make the subjective call of like, did a quizzer go to a different context? And I think that those things are better. Um, but I think that there is definitely a tension there because in general, quizzing is a content um, or verbatim sport. And so there may be times where the quizzer's answer were like, well, they, they got the like point of the answer, but they missed these significant words, right? Um, which maybe it's a who interrogative and they identified the person, but the person is modified, you know, by some adjectives that say more about them. And well, because quizzing is a verbatim sport, 
or a content sport, um, we really need you to say those words, even though in the grand sense of things, if we're asking like who did this stuff and you told us who, like you do, you do know that information, but um, we kind of rule on it a little bit differently. And I guess just jump in at any point there. Okay. Well, so um, I think I'm going to respond with my most profound response first and then go through the deeply less profound stuff afterward, which is exactly the opposite <laughs> of the way that I should respond. Um, but if I do it the way that I should respond, I'll probably forget the most profound thing. So, um, and of course, this is me trying to figure out what is the most profound and I could be wrong. But let's start with what I think is the most profound, which is let's zero in on the word better. I think we need to get really clear about what that means. Um, and this kind of leads us into ultimately getting to our second question, which I won't get into just yet, but the the whole why quizzing thing, but like the question of, you know, you're making a, 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 a a posit, you're making a statement, you know, like, like in certain contexts, uh, one being context, subjectivity is better than objectivity. Uh, and then of course, well, what does better mean? Right. Well, accomplishes quizzing's mission more effectively. Right. Well, then what is quizzing's mission? Right. And then we have to kind of dig into that and then we say, okay, well, once we define what quizzing's mission is, why is quizzing's mission that, that particular mission versus something else, right? Quizzing does multiple things when it works, right? And most of the time it does work. Quizzing is, is accomplishing multiple things simultaneously, right? And all of those things could be said to be part of its outcome, right? Um, are those things part of its mission uh, quite possibly, right? So we could, we could make an objective for quizzing that if we attain that objective, we have all of these sort of other side benefits that are happening as well. And cumulatively that cloud is the stuff that, w that we are working toward, right? So if we are accomplishing that better, you know, uh, say with subjectivity versus objectivity in this particular context of context, then does that, you know, that that's a good thing, right? And then, well then, but why, right? And then that kind of leads us to this other antecedent that leads us to another antecedent. And eventually we end up with, you know, why are we doing quizzing at all, right? So I think that you and I, Scott, you and I are fairly clear on what better means, right? But I don't think we should necessarily assume that that's universally held. In fact, I think it would be extraordinarily dangerous for us to assume that that's universally held. We've, we've encountered, you and I both individually and collectively or uh, jointly have encountered situations where uh, people's definition of better is very, very different. And it's usually because some antecedent of that chain going back to, you know, why quizzing or maybe even higher than that is somewhat misaligned. No, I shouldn't say misaligned is just definitionally different, let's say. Right. Um, and so as a result, you know, we could have, I, I think a lot of times rule book disagreements oftentimes are really about, sometimes they can be about the actual rule book itself. Right. But oftentimes they're usually about something up that, you know, up that chain of, of better tree. Right. Um, so I would want to get really, really clear about better before we ultimately kind of decide, you know, context. That being said, you know, we've talked a lot about context in past episodes. We're not obviously that far off in terms of our different perspectives about it. But with that said, then I want to cut. Well, actually, before I move on to my less profound 
points. What do you think about the <laughs> that particular point? Um, if I grasped it correctly, I mean, in a very, very general sense, I am saying like, what's the like, um, what are, what barometer are we using? And it's just kind of general participation, engagement, and knowledge of the material. And right. To, and to me, like pure objectivity around like correct via probably all word perfect or the objective way I presented out of context, I think would generally decrease all of those things. Sure. Fair enough. But then of course the question is, but, and your point is true. Like I'm not disagreeing with your point. I'm more trying to express that that sort of one level of abstraction is not the right word. Maybe it is. It's one level of encapsulation of this concept of better that then has another layer and another layer. And I think like all three layers matter and getting clear about those things matter before we can actually get to a true, you know, understanding of, of, of better right now. I think if we say, well, better equals, uh, we're just going to take a shortcut and we're going to say better equals more engagement by more quizzers. Then I'm like, okay, great. Then I agree that that's a good thing. That may not be the best better, but it's a, certainly a better that we can we can leverage, and then we can apply that to this you know particular uh, debate, and then say, okay, well, what would cause more engagement, right? Um, and I agree with you. I think I have no data to support this, but I would suspect that an objective rule of word perfect in all cases would actually help some quizzers, a minority of quizzers increase their engagement, would, but would actually reduce total engagement across all of quizzing, uh, quizzing them, right? By mm-hmm. some, you know, amount, right? Um, totally, totally agree, right? Um, but we're basically, to get to that particular point, I think my point is really just to get to that point, we are making sort of a sidestep of that better tree, uh, and we're saying, well, we're using, uh, you know, you, uh, quizzing engagement as the the metric that we're using for better, right? Um, and that's totally fair to do. Um, but I think it's important for us to to be aware, cognitively, you know, aware that that's what we're doing when we're when we're discussing those things, because I think that those those metrics are not universally held. Um, by everyone. And well, of course that's redundant to say so, but does it, anyway, I'm babbling. Does that make sense? I think so. Okay. So let me, let me then jump into something a little bit more concrete then. So, but only slightly. So we're still, we're, we're still in the slightly theoretical and esoteric, but we're, we're moving one layer closer to concrete and I promise we'll get to concrete, but I have a theory and, and I'm kind of, th- maybe I'll throw this out and then you let me know if you think I'm wrong here. I think subjective rules are just, I'm going to say poorly, but I, but I don't mean that to mean that they're flawed, right? I just, I think they, subjective rules have less definedness or refinedness in them than objective rules. So I'm not saying that they are poor in the sense that they are less good as objective rules uh, from a, from a, you know, moralistic standpoint, but rather saying subjective rules are just poorly defined or insufficiently refined objective rules. And what I mean by that is, is to say, 
that if you were to take a particular kind of rule or set of rules and and refine them, define them and refine that definition over time to get them to objective, that ultimately the theory is that's possible, number one, but number two, it's not easy. In fact, it, it ranges in a lot of cases from hard to very hard, right? Um, so ultimately I see subjective rules as a way to procrastinate the hard work of deriving an objective rule that would would result in the same results that you want from the subjective rule. Ultimately, you pay for subjective rules with ruling inconsistencies, right? Um, so in other words, if we could define a, and I, I shouldn't say if, let's say we invested a huge amount of time and for some definition of huge, and we created an objective context rule that had the same outcome as a subject a current subjective context rule right uh that would be some sort of time investment but we're saying that ultimately in at the end of that time investment we would have an objective rule that had the same outcome as the subjective rule essentially we pay for that objective rule with the investment of our time right and a lot of mental energy and work and blah 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 right um if we don't invest ourselves that direction to get to an objective rule, we ultimately save that investment time, but we pay for the subjective rule with inconsistency between uh, rulings, right? Now, this is, of, of course, assuming that if we al also had an objective rule, all the quiz masters actually applied the rule as it is objectively written, which is, of course, a big assumption, but <laughs> let's pretend that ass assumption doesn't happen right now. Um, so on the flip side, if we go with a subjective rule, we're ultimately paying for that a subjective rule through ruling inconsistencies. And there's some cost to that, right? Now, there might not be a lot of cost, right? You could say, well, yeah, there is a non-zero cost to those subjective rulings, but the cost is, you know, non-zero, but it's small, right? And you could say the cost of figuring out the objective rule is high, right? So in a sense, it's almost like you know, work automation and software it would be one potential analogy, right? Where you could say, you know, you've got somebody manually working in Excel, entering data, correcting data fields and moving things around and so forth. Or you could write software uh, to do it. Now, the software would be consistent. It wouldn't have human error. It would, you know, run tremendously faster. Uh, the results would be predictable all of that kind of stuff, testable, all that kind of stuff. But it costs a fair amount of money to, well, and time, uh, which is money, to create that software. So in certain contexts, uh, and I'm, I know I'm overloading that word on purpose um, a little bit, in certain contexts, it's actually better not to automate, to say, yeah, you know, we're going to take this constant expense of a human being having to do data entry here and here and here and clean up this data and so forth manually. And we're going to have the expense of errors within that data introduced by the human process. But we're okay with that because overall the cost of, of automating is too high, right? And so, you know, similarly, when we're talking about rules like this, I think you know, yeah, I think there's, there's subjective could be better in the sense of we don't have to spend the investment. We do have to take on some amount of cost in rulings inconsistency, but maybe the cost of that inconsistency is smaller than the uh, time and effort uh, and expense for some definition of expense to generate the objective rule that has the same outcome. Does that make sense? That all makes sense. Um, 
And I think part of me is making the calculation that I think the work is far too high to for the um, for the less than a 100% probability that we can even get to something objective, right? Right. Um, with the like similar outcome, right? And not the um, disagreeable outcome of objectivity as I laid out earlier. Um, so part of me is making that rough calculation. And I think part of me also doesn't want to start going down the objective route, realizing it's difficult and abandoning it for some like, we're one third of the way there, but it's kind of worse in all ways. Yeah. Cause then you end up with the whole one word can't take you out of context stuff. And that's just bad. I mean, yeah, that's actually worse than a subjective rule. Right. So like the current rules, like the main one being, um, unique words are required. And then it, um, made this addendum necessary, which is saying a single word cannot take you out of automatically take you out of context. Um, both of those are kind of necessitated by a wish to be more objective, but we're not going to do the work to actually be objective. And so we like slightly move the needle, but introduce complex complexity and still kind of have basically all the same downsides and maybe a little bit less downside from inconsistency among Quizmaster rulings, which by the way, I don't think inconsistency is a bad thing per se. Like maybe, Maybe that's me, like not believing that the ideal world exists where we can have con- um, pure consistency because everything is stated objectively. Um, but I don't have a problem with there being an amount of variation that you can't really account for. Sure, and and to be fair, I, I agree. I think I think you can get to a point where you have 100% objective rules. The cost is high, but I think it's a worthy cost because you recoup that cost uh, forever right? Um, assuming you maintain the, the effort that you, you put into it, right? It's just like, it, it's, it's very analogous to software, the more that I think about it, right? Um, but going to the, you know, the software analogy here, which again, it's an analogy, so don't read too much into it, because, you know, like all analogies, it's, it's flawed. But imagine you've got, you know, on one side, the subjective side, you've got a, a series of humans entering data into something, right? Or, or doing manual data, you know, searching and filtering and cleaning and all that kind of stuff. And then on the other end of the, uh, the spectrum, not a spectrum, but on the other side, you have the objective program that actually does it well, right? We can make the argument of like, okay, well, the program is cheaper once it's operational than the operational costs of the of the subjective side of things but to get there you have to put in this upfront cost but you don't have the reoccurring cost of the subjective side of things so then it's it, then it's you know just math to say well how many times are we going to be doing this data entry and uh therefore do we want to use humans or do we want to have a computer and what's the what's the overall cost benefit of actually ensconcing this process in software, right? And we can have those sort of, you know, calculations and figure things out. But what we're doing in this is we are assuming that there will be an objective outcome that actually does the job, right? What, there is a third possibility, right? Not just the subjective or the objective, there can be the kinda it works software. 
And that can be extraordinarily dangerous because at least with humans, there might be human error, but you can, you know, add more processing around it to, you know, maybe you have a human do the data entry and then you have another human check that human's data entry. And then you maybe have a third human that kind of looks over the system for systemic errors or whatever, right? There's ways that you can kind of, you know, tap down on individual errors that pop into play, right? Um, and this is kind of analogous to answer judges to some degree, but the worst possible world is the world that third way where you've written software, but the software has bugs, right? Because now you're able to automate a huge amount of data entry and you're going to get it wrong. Um, and that's, that's terrible. <laughs> you end up in a w- much worse situation than either side of the fence. Right. You know, which I would almost put the requiring unique words in that bucket because I would, I would say... Um, for every unique word that has um, meaning to it, good quiz masters were already requiring them. So the only change for those quiz masters is now they have to require unique words that don't have a whole lot of important meaning to them. Right. And then even among bad quiz masters, do we think that bad quiz masters are significantly not requiring unique words that have meaning? You know, like I, I take not take offense, like. I'm very critical of lots of quiz masters and I wouldn't say that like I see this epidemic of being super lenient on interrogative answers, you know, like um, I think you probably gain a really small amount of consistency at the extreme edges of really bad quiz masters that aren't requiring unique words with meaning. Um, But other than that, like, I mean, maybe you're reducing the overall mental strain on quizmasters because this is definitely an objective thing that they can um, make sure that they require and cite as a reason that a quizzer got wrong instead of having to really say, like, I don't think you got, like, enough of the words and meaning that I was needing, you know? So, I mean, maybe there's a gain in that arena, um, making it more accessible to newer quizmasters, which might get you more of them. Um, so there might be some of those sorts of benefits. There could be. And in, I mean, and to be fair, you and I are both in the same camp of disliking the unique word rule, but we are not speaking from a universal perspective, right? Um, or I said that in a very convoluted way. Sorry. There are those out there who disagree with us and they have very rational, uh, well thought through well-articulated counter-arguments. Now, I think those folks are incorrect. And, you know, I, Scott, I think you think they are incorrect as well. But we're not, um, despite the fact that both you and I look at that rule and see it as a bug, as a failure, as an attempt to be objective and not actually doing the work, right? It, it's sort of the worst possible world where you've created automated software, but you didn't write it well. So you're just basically automating the creation of more failure, right? Um, there are those who actually disagree with that perspective and have well-reasoned uh, points of view, well thought through points of view that say, no, actually there's, there's great good that comes from having this unique ru- uh, word rule. Sure. But of course I think they're incorrect, but <laughs> I mean, and then of course we're talking about this specific thing. Anyway, circling back around, I think I don't disagree with what you're saying, except for the fact that I think that we can't know really if it's possible, well, maybe we can figure out a cost benefit analysis prior to doing the work. But ultimately, I think there is a way to make context objective. Um, and I think there is a way to do it in such a way that is not broken. Uh, and I think 
if we can get to that perspective, like, and, and of course I'm, I'm saying, I don't really know if there is, I don't know for certain that there's a way that we can get to that goal. Right. But if we can get to that goal, I believe that that is a better universe than a subjective one, assuming we can get to the goal. Now, if we can't get to the goal, we really, 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 really shouldn't put in objective half measures because then we're just introducing badness um, for all the reasons that we've discussed before. But I think ultimately the the question is more like, yeah, is it is is there going to be work involved to get to the to a, a, an objective role? Absolutely, yes. Is it going to be hard work? Yes. Is it going to be very hard work? Probably. Um, should we attempt it? I think yes, because if we fail, okay, well, we failed, we tried. Uh, maybe somebody who's smarter than us in the future can figure out how to get there. Um, and we can go back to the subjective role, right? But I think if we invest that time, it's a, you know, not, it's not a ton of investment because it's a few, it's a few people going down, you know, the rabbit hole to see how far it goes. Uh, and maybe with the success option being there, right? Um, but it, I mean, sort of take a, take a giant step back and just, I mean, this is a crazy example, but uh, another flawed analogy, but this one way more flawed. Imagine a fully subjective rule book where 100% of all decisions were entirely up to the quiz master to decide based on whatever criteria the quiz master wanted, right? Like, so completely 100% subjective, the quiz master based on their feelings or, or anything um, could, could just decide, right? Um, that rule book would be a lot smaller than the rule book we have right now. It would be a lot simpler, right? It would be a lot more subjective and I would argue it would be really hard for a quiz master to be fair. Even if, a, you know, assuming all the quiz masters, you know, desperately want to be as fair as possible, it would be much harder for a quiz master to be fair across all uh, cases, right? Even within your own room, a single quiz master would not necessarily be consistent with them with themselves, right? Because their their subjective feelings could change from from meet to meet, year to year, whatever it happens to be, right? Ultimately, that's sort of the the extreme. We wouldn't want that. We also desperately do not want a rule book that is halfway objective in the sense of of you know not and I don't I don't mean that in the sense of having some objective and some subjective, that's not what I mean at all, but rather having objective rules that are half measures that are basically broken, right? That's worse than the subjective example that I was uh, providing. But if we could get to a, a truly objective rule book, I think that's the best case scenario of all of them. I would agree, but with the caveats that I stated, right? So like objective, but with the outcomes that we like. Yes, and yeah. And third order and fifth order effects calculated into the, you know, that's, that's part of the, the thing. Like, like we can come up with a series of, of, of objective rules and we think the first order effect of those objective rules are good. And maybe they are, uh, but then there's going to be second, third, fourth, fifth, hundredth order effects that are negative or countermission or not better for whatever we've defined better to be within that particular context. Right. Anyway, sorry, I droned on for a while, but, um, any other thoughts on that? I don't think so, but I think it shows that um, it's helpful to state, like, like um, how are you are judging your statements of better or worse or good or bad, right? And then talk about um, the potential outcomes. Because I see one which is now is better than almost anything that I can um, dream of in the future. 
um, especially the partial measures along the way. But that doesn't mean like I would agree with your statement, right? That if we could get to objective rules in these areas, it would be better, you know. So just there's a lot of nuance to be stated. Right. Indeed. Well, and and you know, like looking at the new rulebook project. I mean, that it, it before we started that, it looked like a very big, giant, hard, really hard project. And to be fair to us, it was a you know, it was a big hard project, right? Um, but we succeeded, right? And we succeeded with I don't know how long did it take us? Like four months or something, give or take. Yeah, um, but like anything, yeah. I think ninety percent of the work was done probably within a. 20 day period. Yeah, true, true, true. But, but I mean, it's still, it was a fairly intense, you know, 20 days. I mean, there was a mm-hmm. fairly, you know, fairly significant amount of work and there were four of us and all four of us that were working on it were, you know, very deeply embedded in the rules and, and care about the, you know, we, we, I described us as the, you know, the gang of the four pedantic rulebook nerds, um, which I think is a fair statement. We, we are definitely nerds and we're very pedantic when it comes to these sorts of things. Um, and it was a fairly significant amount of work that was invested, but I think, you know, the value was, is, was, and is, and hopefully for, for some very long period of time in the future, a very positive thing. But yeah, there's, there is the question that comes back of, was it worth it? Right. And I think the answer is yes, because I think what we've done is set up an environment where future rules changes can actually be done in a way that that is far more beneficial to quizzing than what we've ever had in the past. Um, but ultimately we, we didn't make those calculations objectively because we don't, we don't know We're we're, we're sort of looking at the future and saying, we think this will make, we, we know it will make things better, but by how much, right? Um, we don't really have a clear way of, of describing how much better things are under the new, new rule book. And then being able to say, well, what is the benefit of that versus those the cost of those 20 days? But I would argue that the cost of those 20 days were borne by the four pedantic rulebook nerds. Um, and as a bearer of, you know, 25% of those 20 days, uh, I am very glad that I invested that time. Um, because I think, I think ultimately, you know, I, I paid the price, you paid the price, uh, Jeremy and Zach paid the price. And I think quizzing, you know, benefits as a result. Yeah, but I think, I mean, here are my maybe threefold subconscious calculation of, of doing the project. One was I just wanted something dip, uh, like better, right? Two was um, I, I saw a way that it could happen. And when, <laughs> I, when, I, when I say I saw a way it could happen, there were two main reasons, right? One was the group of people doing it. Um, and the other one was that we were not, we were trying to make it functionally equivalent. Because if we were not trying to make it functionally equivalent, if that was not a requirement, I don't know that I would have been in on it. Because I would have just assumed that it would fail. I think you would have been right to assume that it would have failed. I think it would have been too difficult to push. I mean, of course, it depends on how much change, how many changes we would have made, right? Um, And so who knows? But I think you're right. I think it would have been a much more difficult process for ratification. But, But also, like, I think at the... Like when it comes to ratification, like we had people who said like, well, why don't you do this or this? And we could say like, we might agree with your idea, but it is not functionally equivalent to the 2018 rule book. And right. we are not cha- – so like we could fall back on that and say that. Whereas at the moment that we were like, well, we're fine making it not functionally equivalent and we change anything. Well, then anyone who has an idea, we can't say that. 
right? We can't be inconsistent. We, we have to say like, oh, well, let's consider this. And that would have taken a decade. Um, and so I think that that was a really, really important thing. Um, but yeah, it got done because partly, partially we're like, I, I was involved mainly because I was really interested in just doing it <laughs> and not for benefit that I reap later or benefit that anyone else reaps later. I just wanted to do it. <laughs> Um, right. But then also because I saw a way that it could be successful. Um, and then I think now, like we sorted through so many places where the same thing was referenced with different wording, which leaves the reader to wonder if the different wording was intentional or unintentional. And when we clear all of those things up, so the references to the same thing are referred to in the exact same way, it makes it so much easier to change things in the future. Um, whereas now, you change something in one part of the rule book because of the way that you're randomly needing to interpret other things that are, are vague or worded in a certain way. You just end up with kind of tentacle impacts of an, a single intended change. And I think we have graced, greatly minimized that risk of future rules changes. Yeah, indeed. Um, it, it the amusing thing about going through this project, it, it reminds me so much of a software rearchitecture project. And, and I know, you know, you do a lot of work in uh, data analytics and software, and so you know you're familiar with this concept. But uh, for you know listeners who are not you know familiar, you you've got this you know piece of software that was originally small. It's been iterated on over a series of years. Uh, it becomes, we call it spaghetti code, where, you know, if you pull on one little part of the code, it's connected through the beast to the other part of, of the code. And you can never really figure out, like, what you're going to pull on will cause the entire thing to collapse or work or work in very strange and unpredictable ways. So there's a there's fear often in software developers to changing spaghetti code because they're worried, well, I might break something and never know about it. Right. Um, and so, you know, similarly, as we were going through this project, I think there was it, it felt to me anyway, like we were fixing software that had just grown beyond its original scope. Right. Um, but I mean, it did take some effort getting us all convinced that this was the right thing to do. Right. I mean, uh, you took a little bit of arm twisting to, you know, you were like, yeah, it would be great. I would love to see a rule book, you know, rewritten. That was always your stance. But like. Um, you took a, it took a little bit of arm twisting for you to get fully engaged on it. I know it took a little bit of arm twisting to get, um, you know, Jeremy, uh, you know, fully engaged as well. Right. So, I mean, it was, uh, what actually, that was an interesting, that sort of raises an, a question in my mind. What was it that kind of was the point where you shifted from kind of project pessimism to not optimism, but there at least is a plausible, you know, positive outcome. Yeah, so I think I've been bitten in the past by people in leadership, either um, at the life CMA level or the um, quizzing CMA leadership level, of things just kind of ending or dying or being decided one way or another with, like, no information to the general quizzing public. And so it, like, it made me very distrustful of anyone's motivations. <laughs> And so when it came to this project, I was like, okay, so we can be here knowing that we will do a good job and knowing that we will actually try to make it functionally equivalent and not sneak in our pet change. But if some random person can just say like, oh, um, I don't like this project, it's not going to happen, then like, like I didn't have the trust that that wouldn't happen. And I needed to have 
um, as much of a guarantee as could be provided that that was not the um, the a potential scenario, right? And so I think that's why it helped having Zach on board, you know, who is the chair of the CQLT, and he could tell me like, oh, this is how voting happens. This is who gets a veto. This is, you know, and like, um, right. I think that was really helpful to me. Right. Well, in the charter too, right? Like we we wrote up a charter and Zach presented it to the CQLT and the CQLT voted unanimously in favor of the charter. That certainly helped because, you know, now the CQLT was saying, yes, we agree that once you're done with your work, we will uh, or it will then go out to districts. And then once districts ratify it, it will come to us. And and we, you know, we accept we, we hereby promise that we will not ignore it at that point, you know, that kind of thing. Right. And I knew that like it was not reasonable to have the CQLT guaranteed to accept whatever we came up with, but I wanted them to at least say like, we understand the project and like as much as we can know, like we plan to move forward with it. You know, that is what I needed because we've had times in the past where you show up to internationals and there's a rule different and you're like, well, when did this happen? And it's like, Oh, someone on the CQLT just decided it, you know? And you're like, well then how, how can we have a discussion about it? And it's like, no, or when you're like, oh, yeah. this CQL2 member like just abruptly resigned. And we're like, did they do something like wrong? Like is it, and it's like, oh, there's no information. It was just it just was done by life. You know, and you're like, well, I don't need to have anyone's dirty laundry aired, but like if you have no idea like what happened with anything, it's like just random, seemingly dictatorial things happening in smoke filled rooms, and you're like, this gives me no trust about any future decision, you know? So I think it, it definitely, it took, um, kind of the idea of that charter and the sequel to saying like, yeah, like this is an idea that we can get behind to really like make me want to devote my time. Right. Indeed. Well, so we probably won't have a ton of time to get into this next topic. Uh, but we, we could at least, which might actually be a blessing in disguise. So, okay. So the next topic, why quizzing? In other words, what's the point? What are we trying to accomplish? Uh, you know, we've, we've talked about quizzing being a sport. I, I believe it is. It's an intellectual sport, not, I mean, there's physical aspects to it, you know, but, but it's really not a physical sport. It's an intellectual sport in the same way that chess is an intellectual sport or bridge is an intellectual sport, that kind of thing. Um, so I would say, you know, quizzing is definitely a sport intellectual as it is. Uh, but then like, what's the point? What are we trying to accomplish? What, what, what are we what are our metrics? Like, how do we know if we're being successful, right? Both in terms, I mean, we could say, well, quizzing is successful if it grows. Well, okay, but it's more than just a social club, right? Or, or just a club in general, right? We're not just, we're not successful if we're really, really big and not doing anything, right? Um, we're, we are also not successful if we are so small that we can't, you know, option we can't operate effectively right so what does it mean to be successful what are we trying to do what's the point of quizzing why are we doing quizzing right so big big questions right and this is sort of like i don't know third level abstraction from the whole better thing that we were talking about in you know the context of context and honestly before this we started recording i i, I spent a good i don't know 45 50 minutes trying to think through this question and I have lots of ideas, um, but I'm not really super excited about any of them. Like, like they're all true, but well, I think they're all true. I could be wrong, but like, I'm not really sure. 
that I've really gelled on kind of the big picture. This is so, I mean, and I'll, I'll, I'll kind of throw out three buckets and then I don't know, Scott would love to hear both your reaction to these sorts of ideas, but really want to hear your independent ideas as well. So for me, there were kind of three big buckets of why quizzing, right? Um, and I guess you could kind of label them as sort of self-beneficial, self to the quizzer, right? Like, like why would a quizzer want to be involved in quizzing, right? Why would a parent want their child to be involved in quizzing, right? Why does a coach want a quizzer to be, be involved in quizzing and so forth, right? There's sort of like things that benefit that quizzer, right, in the short term, there are things that benefit that quizzer in the long term, and then there's a bigger bucket, um, a broader bucket um, that has a lot of complex nuances and so forth. But I'll get to the third one last. So in the first bucket, right, the sort of the things that benefit the quizzer as an individual in the short term, right? So like, you know, sportsmanship is a big deal. Uh, we By being involved in a sport, a youth is able to understand what good sportsmanship is all about and to be able to reflect those things. Uh, there's a whole sort of sense of, of ethics that come out of this sports environment uh, in terms of, you know, uh, the concept of fair play, the concept of uh, graciousness, the concept of honor and, and these sort of things. These are all sort of tied up in sportsmanship, right? And so, you know, the youth involved in quizzing is exposed to that they see it in other quizzers, they want to emulate it themselves, and it, and, it, and, it, and it grows as a result of that. There's fellowship in a Christian community, right? There's a lot of fellowship that happens in quizzing, less so via virtually, uh, although more remotely, uh, it, you know, it, it, long distance is a little bit more easy with, you know, virtual than in person. But eventually we go back to in person and fellowship becomes a really, really big part of the quizzing experience. And that's a really good thing. Uh, you get to meet others. This is somewhat redundant, but you get to meet others both from within your district, uh, nearby churches, regional churches, and that sort of stuff. But then you also get to meet people from wildly different cultures, right? So like we in the Pacific Northwest get to meet and hang out with people from Pennsylvania, right? That's a very different culture way out there. Uh, we get to hang out with people from various parts of Canada, right? Um, and there's different cultures in different parts of Canada, right? Relative to other parts of Canada. And we get to experience that and learn from it and grow from it. And that's a, that's a really good thing. There's the mental capacity improvement, right? The more you practice something, the better you get, right? So if you want to, you know, think more clearly, playing chess is actually helpful because it helps you think strategically. It helps you think multiple iterations ahead, that sort of stuff, right? Um, memorizing scripture helps your mental acuity. It's sort of exercising a particular type of mental muscle. And by exercising it, you get stronger uh, doing that over time, right? So that's a great benefit for quizzers. Um, there's a sense of accomplishment, kind of a self-esteem thing. You know, you go through, you memorize uh, some stuff, you get some questions correct in a meet. That feels great. A sense of accomplishment there. That's a real thing. And it's a beneficial thing. Um, there's also long-term things, right? You, we've talked, uh, about having the verses, uh, embedded in your heart, written in your heart so that years in the future, you are able to call on those things kind of in a self aid sort of moment. Or if you're, you're, you're helping somebody else, you're able to call on those verses and be able to translate the, that wisdom, uh, for somebody that you're helping, whether that person is yourself or other people. Um, there is 
a belief that one self-beneficial thing that is long-term is that uh, that quizzers are able to keep the faith better uh, because they have more exposure to scripture. I don't actually think that's true. Um, Andrew um, Campbell, um, quiz master from, and actually um, a program director, I think for a while uh, in uh, PNW did a somewhat exhaustive statistical uh, uh, survey of past quizzers and found that uh, being involved in quizzing versus not didn't actually make all that much difference in 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 terms of you know persistence within the faith. Um, so I don't know that I necessarily believe that one to be true. Although I mean maybe it could be, and I've just you know I haven't seen enough data or something like that, right? So that's bucket number two. But then there's this sort of like third bucket, and this is the big stuff. And I think this is where this is where things start to matter a lot more for me. Um, and this all kind of comes down to like, you know, hey, we were just memorizing. Uh, we're, well, actually still in the process of memorizing and reviewing Matthew. And right, we're talking about the Great Commission. Uh, you know, we're talking about we're, we're commanded to go make disciples uh, of other nations. Go be discipleship uh, 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 makers, right? Uh, what is a disciple of Christ? Is a, a, a disciple of Christ is a follower of Christ. What is a follower of Christ? It's somebody who obeys Christ's command, right? Or commands, plural, right? You're obeying the commands of Christ. Okay, well, you can't, you know, intentionally obey the commands of Christ without actually knowing the commands of Christ, knowing while we don't believe that knowing, we're not Gnostics, knowing doesn't you know, save you or not save you, knowing allows you to follow Christ's commands or not. It, it, we're, we're commanded to move on from milk to solid food. And thus we get to this whole idea of like understanding systematic Christian doctrine. Um, and I think, you know, as a pastor myself and actually sitting on a credentials committee for pastors uh, in the Pacific Northwest, I see this sort of multi-iterative multi-generational because each generation is an iteration so i call it multi-iterative degradation of christianal doctrinal truths awareness of truths teaching of truths and we move from a a, a clear understanding of the commands of christ to more relativistic understanding of christ's commands and there ultimately that leads to an abandonment of, of the commands of Christ, right? And I, I can see that happening very, very, very slowly uh, in both US and Canadian Christianity. And I see quizzing as uniquely situated to reverse that, right? Um, I mean, you could say, well, shouldn't pastors do something? Well, pastors do a lot of things and they try really hard, but I don't, I don't think you're gonna see a massive shift in pastors anytime soon. And there's a limited set of things that pastors can do. I think certain pastors are not doing enough. They're doing a whole lot of work and they're burning themselves out, but they're doing the wrong things uh, in terms. And, and by wrong, I mean, I should clarify that wrong in the sense of less optimal to bring about a strong, cohesive, you know, uh, fulfilling Christian faith. Right. Uh, but I think quizzing is uniquely situated to provide laity. Now we can always, we can always talk about, you know, Hey, somebody was a quizzer and then they decided to be, you know, go, go into ministry full time, become a pastor. And, you know, that person is, is ministering much more effectively as a pastor because of that person's experience with quizzing. Sure. We've heard those stories left and right. And that's great. And I, and I don't, I don't want to belittle those things. Those are, those are wonderful stories. Those are wonderful things that have happened. But I think a greater thing is 
what quizzery what quizzing does for quizzers who then become the adult lady within Christendom. Uh, and I feel like, and I, I and I'm, I'm stumbling over words here because I haven't thought this all the way through. But I think there's a really big opportunity and 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 purpose for quizzing that goes way beyond the first two buckets. So anyway, I've, I've blathered on tremendously about that. But Scott, what are your thoughts of that, about any of this? Hmm. Um, I don't know if, if I have direct responses or thoughts to anything that you've said. I think I think about quizzing in a much more general and I guess less special way. Um, but I guess like there are lots of non-school activities that, um, kids in the ages of sixth grade through 12th grade do right there's traditional sports there's musical instruments there's groups like boy scouts or girl scouts and i'm sure there's many other similar ish groups um there are jobs of some kind um and if you asked for like um like any of those like would they be able to articulate like Okay, I'm I'm very ignorant about anything like Boy Scouts or Girl Scouts, but like take traditional sports, musical instruments or something. Like would any of those activities be able to articulate a like concise mission statement? And the answer is probably no, right? Um, because I think inherent in all of these things are so many human aspects that are positive to experience, but all of these activities are not necessarily prescribing any of them as like the utmost thing for someone sixth through 12th grade to experience, but it's also not assuming that they know what's important to the parents of these kids. Right. Um, right. There could be, there are like in almost all of these, there are aspects of teams and teamwork, right. And, and competition, which leads to failing and succeeding things that are fair, things that are unfair. Um, though, and you know, some people will really excel at a given activity and some people will not. Some activities are, constructed specifically to motivate those who are excelling the most. Some are constructed specifically to um, bring along and teach those that um, are excelling the least, right? Um, and all of these are like important concepts, but no one is saying like, oh, this one is the most important concept. Um, there are other concepts like learning something new, um, doing something physical with your body, um, doing performance in public, um, figuring out things that bring you as an individual person the most amount of fulfillment and passion. Like these things are, are like um, dealing with authority, um, figuring out um, like how to respect authority, but at the same time not to assume that authority is infallible or um, always right about anything or even mostly right about anything. Um, like these things are like kind of inherent in all of it. And I would really struggle to say like, oh, this is the thing that quizzing is about. Um, and so I don't know. I think it makes it difficult to um, think of like what would be the most concise sort of mission statement or divining rod for quizzing to have. I know myself, especially when I was the district coordinator of PNW, I didn't want to overplay the religious aspect of it because to me, if you really bought into, well, I'm saying that negatively. I'm saying it, if you like, if you think that the like deep understanding and internalization of the Bible is the most important thing, then you might go about it differently and really focus on individual relational level with each kid and like 
what is the best way to convey those more thematic and meaningful concepts rather than verbatim words, right? Um, but we we, we kind of take a, like that's a very individualized and personal approach that probably doesn't work on a large program level. And so I think we kind of, um, we adopt the belief that we are trying to maximize knowledge of the material that will be beneficial in in different ways that we can't know now. And to me, like from a program kind of standpoint, that was always the m- most effective way to approach something, knowing that, say, at the church level or at the parent and family level, um, there probably is a very different individualized relational level that is more effective to approach something at, right? Yeah, I mean, I totally agree. I think there's something unique about quizzing that goes beyond that, right? So, like, for example, you know, let's say somebody, let's take baseball, right? Um, And let's put it in the context of scholastic baseball, right? So let's say, you know, you're a freshman in high school and you have the opportunity to try out for the baseball team, right? Uh, well, there's a certain amount of lots of good things that could come out of your involvement in baseball. And, and you've articulated a lot of those, right? Um, and they're all very good things, right? Uh, respect for authority, but the awareness that authority is not infallible, right? Uh, good sportsmanship, a good sense of fair play, good sense of honor, being able to accept a win, uh, and a loss with, you know, equivalent grace, you know, that kind of stuff, right? There's all kinds of good things, right? There's a lot of character building opportunities there. Uh, it can be a very good thing, right? Uh, but then there's also, uh, let's say basketball, right? Uh, you could try it for basketball. Well, is there something uniquely better about basketball versus say baseball right now um i can actually play baseball and i can't jump to save my life so it would probably be a good idea for me to join baseball uh just from a physical you know capability perspective but like is there something about one sport versus the other that is better or worse for those things and i'm not sure that there is right and so like when you talk about quizzing in the context of like you know it helps you be it helps you develop you know good sportsmanship fair play honor you know self-discipline uh good you know ethics fellowship with other you know uh, uh folks teamwork right respecting authority but not believing that authority is infallible you know all this kind of stuff right all of that stuff is is equivalent to say football or basketball or baseball or you know some other sport right but then there are things that go beyond that or, or are different than that, that, that distinguish quizzing as unique amongst everything else. And I don't mean like, you know, baseball, what does baseball teach you? Well, it means that I can learn how to swing uh, versus, you know, take a ball and try and throw it up into the sky and, and get it into a hoop or something like that. Right. Um, there are different physical skills that I learn. Um, and those can be good things later, but assuming that I don't go pro uh, in either of those two sports, which by the way, if you know me and sports, that's a very, very good assumption that I will not turn pro in anything sports related. Uh, the, like, like ultimately I think quizzing still has things that are m- vastly more profound than those things. So like, like quizzing being a sport has all of those sporty things, but it also has things that are vastly more profound. I don't know. Does that make sense? Sure. So here's a philosophical question. 
do you think that among activities, the mission of a single activity should be its unique delta from all others? No, no, not necessarily, right? So, like, and I think, and and we should be clear about mission, right? There are there is the the defined mission, and then there are outcomes that that are much bigger, right? So, I think we've talked about you know defining the mission of quizzing is to try to get the most number of quizzers to memorize the most number of verses, right? That I think is a good mission, and we can argue about that. And I don't think you and I would, but I think others could argue with that. And maybe there's a, there's a different mission, uh, right? But the mission is something that gives us a, a view into metrics, right? So you could say the mission of a baseball team is to, of this season is to win the pennant or, or I don't know, get to state. Uh, clearly I was not on the baseball team, um, but whatever it is, like, like you could, you could say like, this is our mission, right? Our mission is to achieve some goal, right? Um, and, and there's a metric behind it. You can measure it. You can see how close or far you are from that goal. Maybe it's, we're going to win, you know, 62% or better the number of, of games that we play or something like that, or whatever the mission happens to be. Right. And then there are all kinds of other outcomes that are, that are, that are incredibly way more important than the mission. Right. And, and like in baseball, right. You know, good sportsmanship, uh, learning that in high school, really vastly more important than what percentage of games you win right? Vastly, vastly more important. But I would caution about putting sportsmanship into your mission statement because your mission statement lets you hone in on metrics and your metrics are things that actually give you the direction to then derive all these other outcomes. Does that that make sense? It does. And I like, don't get me wrong. I am as metrics and object objectivity driven as the next person, but I would definitely want to sit with that more because I think Sometimes a mission can be like um, you've probably heard the the notion of a big, hairy, audacious goal, right? Where it's almost mm-hmm. um, it's borderline unattainable, but it serves as like one kind of north star that you head towards. And so I think you know, um, like some companies or some activities, like their mission is like to have more fun or something like that, which probably almost impossible to actually measure, right? Um, maybe right. maybe there are ways to do it. But I can still see it being useful in a roughly mission or goal sense um, as that North Star. Um, but me bringing up this thing doesn't, doesn't contest your point necessarily. But I think that I wouldn't necessarily want to make sure that everything can be um, very carefully measured. <laughs> Oh, absolutely not. Right. So how do you measure sportsmanship? Right. I think sportsmanship is a really good thing that comes out of quizzing. I couldn't even begin to tell you how to objectively measure sportsmanship. Right. It's like it's what's art. Well, I'll see I'll I'll know art when I see art. I mean, that's that's kind of the same thing about sportsmanship. Um, I think it's an incredibly positive outcome of quizzing. I don't want that to change. I have no idea how to turn it into a metric, so I'm not going to even try. Sure, but I think sometimes stated, maybe not a single mission, but things that are important definitely guide um, actions that are that are taken. Right? Like th- right. there's a there's a reason that in some sports you have the helicopter parents who cuss out officials, and you don't have that in quizzing, right? Um, right? And so something can be not measurable and maybe not your singular mission, but there are still ways that it trickles down and is enacted and makes a difference. Oh, absolutely, right. And I think that's the thing about quizzing. I think quizzing's, the, I think the greatest, most important answer to the question of why quizzing 
is something that should never be in the actual mission statement, right? And it's that, I think it's that third bucket that I was talking about that I haven't really fully articulated well or defined well. I wouldn't want any of that to ever be part of the mission. Um, but I think it's the greatest reason why I, I, I am involved in quizzing. Sure. Well, okay. So with that all said, certainly, uh, you know, neither of us have come to great conclusions on, on, on this stuff yet. Uh, a lot more thinking needs to happen on this, on this point. Um, but, uh, we are way over time, uh, because we've talked about some very interesting stuff. All right. So, uh, with all that said, I want to thank everybody for listening to this extended edition of, uh, inside quizzing episode 90 uh we will charge you the same amount there's no extra cost for all this extra awesomeness uh, that you got for for the length of the time here uh but we very much would appreciate hearing from you whether you think this was awesome or not and it is we would really like to hear from you if you disagree with anything that either scott or i have said uh please email us at iq at cbqz.org and you can follow us on Twitter. Our Twitter account is at Inside Quizzing. And of course, you definitely can and should uh, chat with us in kind of almost sort of real near time on Slack in the Inside-Quizzing uh, Slack channel. And with all that said, I will say thank you all for listening. And thank you, Scott. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Griffin. Thanks, Griffin.